So Luke chapter 20 is where we are this morning. We're starting Luke chapter 20. Uh, only four more chapters to go uh, in, the, in the gospel of Luke. Um, so just to catch right back up there real quickly, in Luke 19, uh, Jesus made it to Jerusalem, right? So the, the triumphal entry. And last week we, we talked about how Jesus went into the temple and he cleaned house. Um, he cleaned out the money changers and the, the, the people who were selling and, and buying of, of, uh, of the sacrifices. Uh, and, and he cleaned the temple out this morning, or he cleaned the temple out that day. And one of the reasons that we saw he did that was because he was teaching, right? He was going to be teaching for the next three days or so in the temple. Uh, and this begins that teaching period of, of Jesus in, in the temple. Now, uh, not, it's not new, but Jesus has been a controversial figure since his birth. Um, he has faced opposition since, since his birth, and it continues to ramp up as he gets closer and closer to the cross. And as Jesus was controversial then, uh, boy, is he controversial now. Uh, more, more than ever, he is controversial. This is, this is something that's not new. Jesus is offensive to, to many people, unless, unless they've defanged him and, and, you know, they totally divorced him from the scripture and they just kind of made Jesus in their own image, then, then Jesus is quite the controversial figure. The, the, the Jesus that we believe that the word of God has clearly revealed and that we want to be conformed more and more to, he is a controversial figure. They don't like him. They don't want that Jesus. They wanted Jesus that they create in their own minds. So Jesus is a stumbling block. Right from, this very, from his birth, the time that he was born, to all the way now to the temple, Jesus is a stumbling block to the world. Even his own people is he a stumbling block. Things have not changed. Not only is he controversial, but he's also the most misunderstood person, I think, in all the world, ever, history has ever seen. A stumbling block for unbelievers, to atheists, to other religions, and even people who would call themselves Christians, they all stumble over him. What do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with the Jesus of the Bible? And in a sense, that's what our passage talks about this morning. It talks about how Jesus is revealing to us why people stumble over him. And he uses the people who are already stumbling over him to do so. So let's look at our text this morning. We're going to start reading at verse 1 in Luke chapter 20. Read with me. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you authority? And he answered them, I will, I will ask you a question, now tell me. 
was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they just answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent the servant to his tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, this then, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy and errant word for our joy and his glory. Amen. So we have two main things going on in our, our passage this morning, and your Bible probably splits them up uh, on this Monday, Passion Week day, um, uh, where in verses 1 through 8, there's this confrontation that begins in the temple as Jesus teaches, um, uh, uh, he teaches between him and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, they, they come to him to directly confront him, right, to get him to incriminate himself on where he thinks his authority, not only to preach and to teach in the temple, but also as he has cleansed the temple and cleaned the temple, how he has come into Jerusalem being uh, being worshipped by the people. What authority do you come in doing that? In the second part, verses 9 through 18, Jesus teaches in a, in, in a parable. Um, and it's not hard then to see from this, this parable why the opposition uh, really becomes amped up toward him. What's happening in this parable is, is Jesus is giving us another uh, allegory in a sense of what uh, his what further rejection of God and the word of God of Israel, even up to this point, that's going to lead to his death on the cross. So it's sort of an illustration of what's been going, what's been going down since the beginning of Israel. Now, these, 
These, both of these passages, I think, are meant to be read together because I think the one is in sort of a response to the other because of the confrontation that is made. Jesus is kind of exposing why they want to, uh, um, they want to destroy him and why they want to trick him and why they want him to uh, be killed. So this is why he's, he's saying the parable that he is doing. Now, on the most basic level, it's really exposing the, 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 the Jewish leaders of that day. It's really exposing them, exposing them and how they failed in their, their role and their responsibility as the shepherds of Israel. And we, we've, we've read Old Testament texts that, that this isn't just something new, but it's something that's been happening for, for centuries now, that the shepherds of Israel have neglected their role in shepherding the people. And, and they themselves are literally guilty of rejecting God's message and, and God's word. The, the rejecting of Jesus is the rejection of God's word because he was God incarnate who came in the flesh, the word of God who dwelt among us. And so this isn't a new reality for us. This is kind of one of those ongoing confrontations, but it's escalating. It's escalating to the point where we're going to see him in just a couple days where he will be hung on a cross. Now, we've, we've pretty much have seen what Jesus has said himself uh, quite plainly throughout the Gospel of Luke. And, and that is, uh, you see these guys over here, don't be like them. Don't be like the, the Jewish leaders. Don't be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Don't want to be a Sad, you see? You ever heard that song before? Don't want to be a sad, you see, because they're sad, you see. Don't want to be, okay. Sad, you see, yeah. Yeah, don't want to be them. Don't want to be them. Now, because of that, it's easy for us to look at this group and eventually the, the crowd, too. And, and eventually, it's, it's easy for us just to kind of push them to the side and, and to kind of point at them as, as they are, the wicked ones, they are the dirty ones, that they are the evil ones. And yes, they did act in evil and, and things like that. And we, we kind of want to pick and, and, and prod at the things that they've missed and the things that they have failed to do. But one thing that we see in this passage is that in some measure, some of the things that these same people were doing, and in the same measure, uh, so many Christians or churches do the same thing and have done the same thing. In rejecting God's message, rejecting God's word. You, you know, we have, and it's just here now in the 21st century, we have the access to God's word in, in just ways that is just unprecedented. It's unprecedented. It's, it's, it's so contrary to most of history of how much access we have. And, and even more than that is the, the amount of deep resources that, that I can get on my phone or my iPad like that. And in fact, um, um, our, our brother Bill, he emailed us a week ago of, of a treasure of information. A, a, a wealth, a, a massive bank account of, of God's truth and riches to us like never before. And yet, despite that, what can be said about so many churches and so many Christians of the world today is how we still want to reject God's word. 
and his teaching and his truth, again, become a stumbling block. Those, those things that he has given us can, can still be a stumbling block to us today as much as it was for them then. The very things that Jesus was teaching and proclaiming that day seemed to be the, the very first things that, even in our time and day, that, that people want to forget, that they want to They want to put aside. They they want to change and manipulate it to to be what they want it to say. Or or they just want to abandon it altogether or just condemn it. We we condemn it. But look at verse 1. What does it say? Before the chief priest came up to Jesus and the elders came up to Jesus, what was he doing? He was teaching. And what was he doing? He was preaching the gospel. stumbling block to the world, to the elders, to the chief priests, to our world today is what? It's the gospel. I mean, and, and to us who are being saved by it, it's the, 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 the rich and wisdom and wealth of God, but to those who are perishing, it's foolishness, Paul tells us. It's the gospel that's a stumbling block, and that, that gospel that we see in, in, in the message today, in the parable, the gospel is God and what God is doing. They hate it. They stumble on it. They're blind to it. They're blind to their sin. They're blind to their bold rejection of God. Think about it. The, the chief priest describes they're rejecting God, and yet they think in their minds that they're serving God. Talk about blindness. Talk about, I mean, just utter lostness. A trap. They're blind to the character and nature of God. They're blind to the, to the work of Christ on the cross. They're, they're blind to repentance and faith that's necessary in being reconciled to God. And, and in our world today, what we do is, is we've, we've learned in our higher education to replace it with feeling good about yourself. We've replaced it with, with recycling. We replaced it with, as we learned this week, repenting the plants because you ate a salad. We replaced it with social justice as being the works in the heaven. I mean, doesn't it seem like nowadays that there's just a race of morons trying to see how far they can go? How fast, think about how fast they can reject God. How fast that Christians who think they're serving God can blaspheme his name. To reject him and to reject the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is a stumbling block. Christ is a stumbling block. So this is something very relevant for us today. Some lessons that we need to learn. I have three lessons for us to learn. Very basic, very things we've been covering throughout the Gospel of Luke, but just sweet reminders for us. The first one is sin. We must understand what this passage says about sin. What's very clear in the confrontation in verses 1 through 8, or 2 through 8, however you want to look at it, um, 
and in the parables, parable in verses 9 through 18, is this idea of sin. Because what else do you call it when you have the Jewish leaders who had no clue that they were rejecting God, but once again, they thought they were in the right, and yet they were opposing the word of God? What else would you call that but sin? Verses 1 through 8, Jesus is he's, he's teaching and preaching in the temple, as we saw. He's preaching the gospel, and this is an offense to, to, to them. And, and, and he's confronted by the Jewish leaders, and they ask him a question, trying to trick him, right? Trying to, for him to incriminate himself. They question his authority. Who gave you the right to do these things? What, what right do you have? And, and, of course, Jesus could, he could easily answer that question. Easy. God. The Father gave me the right to do these things. His authority, as we've learned throughout the Gospel of Luke, his authority is not derived from someone else, but his authority lies in himself because he is the Son of God. All other teachers and preachers of the day, they, they have derived authority. They don't speak according to them, thus saith me. They say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, thus saith me. It is written because I wrote it. It doesn't come from a title or from education or a degree. But Jesus' authority was because he was from God. And his authority that was showed and proved throughout, the, throughout Luke. He, he healed. He, he had control over nature. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He forgave. He forgave. But it's Jesus' question back that, again, exposes their blindness and their hard-heartedness and their sinfulness. He asks them a very simple question. And just, just tell me, then, whose authority did, did John baptize? Was it an authority from heaven, meaning God? Was it by God's authority? Or was, or was John just a rogue and, and, and a heretic and doing his own thing? Or was it just from man? And, and you can look at the deliberation in verses 5 through uh, through seven, they wouldn't. They couldn't see the truth if it hit them in the head, because all they cared about was not the truth. They cared about what, the political ramifications, and whether if they would be stoned or not. They cared more about what people thought than what God thought. That's a that's a blind guy. That's a blind shepherd. When your shepherd denies God and appeals to man. I'm not preaching too angry. When we can't admit that we're wrong, then there's a problem. And they certainly couldn't admit that John was right. And that John was, because John was the forerunner to Jesus. And he himself said, Jesus, the Son of God. That's why they give no answer. And so what does that do? It exposes their their, their sin exposes their, their sinfulness and their rejection of the word of God standing right before them. Because it's not, like they, they, it's not like they didn't have any evidence. They had all the evidence in the world to prove who Jesus was. But their hearts were hard. Their hearts were blind and their minds were blind. And they cared more for themselves their own power, their own position, then they care about truth. And so what is all that called? That's called sin. 
when we care more for ourselves and our position and our own self-preservation than we do about truth and belief in God and following God, that that's called sin. Look at verse 9. Jesus illustrates it right here in verse 9. A man, a man which is God. Right? There's the allegory of who? Of God. Planted a vineyard. That's Old Testament imagery in language, meaning Israel. So God planted Israel, made Israel. And he led it out to tenants. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And when he went into another country for a long while, verse 10, the when the time came, he sent a servant. One prophet or some prophet or a group of prophets, right? Just think prophet when we think servant. He sent a prophet to the, to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. I mean, they didn't listen to the prophet. And he sent another prophet. Maybe this time it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But they also beat him and they treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent yet a third, another prophet, maybe one of the minor prophets, Malachi, Amos, or maybe even this time he's talking about John the Baptist, right? Could be talking about John the Baptist now. And this one they wounded and cast out. What does this tell us? Over and over and over again, this illustrates the sin of Israel and her leaders to reject what? To reject God's word. When you reject the prophets, you rejected God's word, God's message to them, God's message of repentance to them. But it doesn't stop there. Because it tells us later what happens when the man or the owner, the master of the vineyard, sends his own son in hopes that they would respect him. What did they do? They come up with even a more diabolical and evil plan. Terribly foolish as well to kill the son so that they could have the inheritance. Now we may think that's a terrible plan, and it is a terrible plan. Who would do such a thing? Who would plan such a thing? But I assure to you this, that that same logic, that same foolishness is the logic of sinners. It's our very own logic when we are justifying our own sin. Because to sin is to reject God. To not believe His Word. To reject His authority over our lives. And what He said is good for us, we cast that off for our own desires. Even to the point where it says to kill the Son. Doesn't that say something? It shows the necessity of Christ going to the cross, doesn't it? That, that even though we are ourselves, we are guilty in sending Christ to the cross, but, but yet that as well is our salvation. And this is the attitude of the Jewish leaders that we see from verses 1 through 8, and then illustrated in the, the parable. Because what are, what are the tenets doing? The, the, the tenants are, are, are in, in some sense, they are acting as if they are the owners in that the owner is the invader. They say, uh, we, we're the, we're, we've been here 
We've been toiling, we've been working, so this should be mine. They think that they know what's best for the vineyard. Then even the owner does. They, they completely forget that they were just the caretakers and the, the stewards and the tenants of the, the, the vineyard. And instead of using the land for the benefit of the owner, they believe that it was for themselves. Now, I know Jesus is talking directly to the Jewish leaders, but once again, this certainly fits for us. How, the, the things in our own lives that lead us to sin are the things that we believe are made for us when they're not. They're made for God. And all of our lives are made for God. Our, our attitude and our treatment of God is almost the same way sometimes as the tenets. And when we do that, we sin. Isn't, isn't sin saying that we know what's better for our life than God does? That we know better than the owner how to treat the vineyard? And who should reap the benefits of the vineyard? My own glory. My own glory. My own joy. This is how we justify in our hearts how to, when we sin, when we question the one who really is in control. In the vineyard of our hearts, in the vineyards of our lives, our families, our hearts, our friends, our money, etc., is we believe is ours, and that we own them, and that it was made for us. And isn't that most fundamentally wrong with how the human heart approaches, engage in what God calls sin? I feel it. I understand. I know what it feels like to be the desire to be the owner, to be the captain of my own ship. Oh, how we long to desire to be the owner. And as, and as much as humanity wants to think with all of our knowledge and science and technology and power and intellect, all of our sin and all of our logic are really no different than our first parents, Adam and Eve. The logic is the exact same. I'm the owner of this garden. I'm in control of this vineyard. But Adam and Eve were just tenants. And so are we. We are just tenants. And yet, as sin does, it's all just a delusion. It's all just a delusion because we're not the owners. God is. It's a delusion because when we try to satisfy ourselves by acting like the owner, even killing to do so, when really the whole time, again, we're just the tenants. We're just the tenants. J.C. Ryle said, and from this text, he said, if, if we could pull down God from his throne, we would. And why? Why would we want to pull God down from this throne? Because, because sometimes there are things that we want and desire that are against God's word. And if they are against God's word, then we need to pull God down from his throne. And we have to be the authority. When we desire for them, when we desire things for pleasure and satisfaction and desire these things more than we find pleasure and joy in God, and in Christ and in the gospel, we sin. It leads us to reject God's word. 
Do we understand the state of our own hearts? In our own situation, in our own greatest need for, for forgiveness? Do we, do we realize how often we are in the grip of the spirit of our age? We realize how often we are in the grip of the lust of the flesh, and yet we may not even know it. I wish we had more time and we had more of the ability to unpack how much this world is seeking to influence us and to change us outside and inside every day. And the sad reality is that there are professing Christians who reject God even though they think they are not. One of the big ways that they do it is they deny the reality of sin. And they treat sin so lightly. There are those who call themselves Christians who are, in reality, they're openly apostate, which means they have completely denied the faith. Recently, one who has gone apostate called it repentance, but not to God. Repentance to man instead. How do these things happen? Because sin is blinding. Sin leads us to reject God's word, God's message, God's servant and God's son. Sin blinds us to our need for forgiveness and grace in Christ. And this is what Jesus is pointing out to us this morning. The danger of sin and how deceptive it is. We must be careful to remember, brothers and sisters, that we are just tenants and we are not the owners. And we are beholden to him and to him alone. So, so that's the, the first point. We see sin, the rejection of, the rejection of God in his, in his word. But secondly, we see, we see God. We see God. We see the character of, of God. So, so the good news about this passage is it's not just all about the wicked servants. We, we get something really glorious about the character of God in this passage. Verse 9 tells us of the man who planted the vineyard and he let it out to tenants. Again, the, the man is, is God. This is, this is God. God created and made the world. He's the creator and sustainer of the world. He is the creator and sustainer of Israel, who is the, the vineyard. And throughout the Old Testament, we can see over and over and over again how God himself had loved his Israel. He set them apart, and he made them his people. But how does the story go? Well, again, this parable tells us how it goes. They reject the Lord. They, they reject the Lord over and over. They reject the Lord. Just as the landlord sent his servants to receive the portion of the fruit, Israel rejected the Lord. One is sent, beaten, and thrown it out. The second is sent, beaten, and thrown out. The third is wounded and thrown it out. And eventually, the son is sent and is killed. Now, if any of us would have heard this story outside of a biblical context, like if someone was telling you about a person who owned some apartments and these college kids rebelled and wouldn't pay their, wouldn't pay their debts and then they would send collectors and they'd end up beating them up and stuff like that. If you heard something like that, we would be like, uh, call the sheriff's apartment and go in there and get what you got to get. We, we, we would have no doubts, and, and at least in our 
minds that this is what needs to be done. And this is exactly what they would have read when Jesus asked the question, what am I to do? What is the landlord to do? You know, landlords were just as ruthless as they were back then, probably worse. They probably could get away with a whole lot more back then than they could even uh, today because there really wasn't any law. They were ruthless. When the harvest were made, were, was done, there was already people there ready to collect and forcibly taking what they, what they needed to take. But this is a completely different master. This is not a master who, who sends in a mob to break thumbs until they're paid. What does he do? He patiently waits. He's abused. He sends his servant after servant to eventually ask, what shall I do? I'll send my son. And so here's, we know then what Jesus is showing us. He's not only, he's, what he's showing us, he's, he's saying, he said, this is what God is like. This is what your people look like, your landlords look like, but this is what God looks like. This is what God looks like, that he is patient, that in his forbearance, he loves, and that he is merciful with sinners, even when they plot against him, even when they injure him and abuse him and will kill him. He is merciful. This is what we call the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of God. Oh, how God has patiently dealt with his people. Sending messengers time and time and time again to come back. Repent. Come to me. I am your God and you will be my people. And time and time again, abused, mistreated, kicked out, and even, and even killed. And even yet, the best was yet to come because God would send his own son into the world to call them to faith and repentance and then provide salvation. But even then, even now, as we see in the text, the world did not know him, even when he came into his own. His own people did not receive him. You know, I get, I get tired sometimes of hearing about people who are, call themselves really smart, and they genuinely are. They're smart people. They teach at massive academic places and schools and have degrees, and they have positions make lots of money, write lots of books. And I get tired of when, when people like that, they, they read one piece of the Old Testament and they instantly indict God as an egotistical, murderous maniac. Because God, how dare God kill 30,000 people at one time? How dare God send Israel to wipe out nations and kill everything, man, woman, child, and beast? How dare God do that? And I just have to think to myself, the utter arrogance of a man indicting upon God. Such a charge. Because the reality is, is they completely forget the thousands of years of abuse toward God. To take his creation and use it and to, to worship idols and create own, their own gods. They rejected God. We've rejected God. 
in any which way we could. We've rejected God. Israel is like the only thing, the sliver throughout history before Christ that actually showed any kind of relationship and repentance to God, but everyone else was rejecting them. What arrogance to think such things. Boy, that is, that is saying that everyone is innocent. That is saying that I'm innocent. That's saying you're innocent. And the, the real question is when we read the whole Bible and we don't just read, pick certain parts and pick and choose what we want to read, the real question we'll be asking is why hasn't God killed all of us as soon as Adam and Eve ate the apple? Why? Because of the long-suffering of God. Because of the love of God. Because of the mercy of God. And he does not owe any of us salvation or grace. But God is steadfast in his love, in his patience, and in his forbearance, and in his suffering, so that we would repent. That's why he sent more and more servants, because he wanted them to repent. He wanted them to repent. That's why he sent his son, so that they would repent. This is what God is like, and Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. And brothers and sisters, this is what your Father in heaven is like. This is why he sent his servants. This is why he sent his son. Because when you truly see your sin, and you recognize that God is real, and that he is true, and that he is holy, and you really understand what you truly deserve is wrath and damnation and eternal judgment. And when you think about being in his presence, the all-seeing, all-knowing, holy, heavenly Father, God, that our desire to run from him, because he is holy, what Jesus is showing here is that he is also patient and kind, and that we would not run from him, but that we would run to him. Jesus is telling us here, because of who God is, sinner, run to God. And, and again, so we have sin and we have the character and nature of God beyond sight. These are stumbling blocks. Because, because to say that this is who God is and this is the character of God and, and who he is and that he's, a, he's long-suffering, what does that presume? That presumes that you are a person who is in need. That you need grace, that you need mercy. And natural man doesn't want to think that way. We want to think that we are on our own. And if God doesn't add something to my life, then I don't want it. But he is our life. Sin and the character and nature of God are stumbling blocks. But this is the big one. Number three, judgment. <laughs> That's the big one. And it seems weird that when you preach about the steadfast, patience, love of God, to many it would be weird that there would ever be any mention of judgment. But here in this passage, we have both, don't we? We see the long-suffering patience of God, we see sin, but we also see judgment. And judgment, again, is highlighted as a certainty. It's coming. 
God has been patient, and He has been kind, and He has been steadfast, but there will be judgment. There will be judgment. Look at verse 15. After they, they throw out the owner's son, Jesus asks the question, verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. Now, on, on, on some level, I think at some level, everyone would have to agree with Jesus here that, that something needs to happen to tenants who act this wickedly. I mean, now that they've killed someone and wounded someone, that's got to be wrong on some level. And this is judgment. This is destruction. This is national judgment. We've already talked about a few times going through Luke. But more importantly, this is eternal judgment. And even beyond that, the vineyard would be given to others. You know what that means? It's been given to us. That's what that means. It's been given to us. The vineyard has been given to us. We have been grafted in onto the vine through the blood of Christ. But this is judgment. At the end of verse 16, interesting. At the end of verse 16, um, it it tells us that those who were hearing Jesus' parable, this is one of those parables that they actually understood. And and you can see their offense. Their offense. what do, they, what do they yell out? Surely not. No. God's going to remove and destroy us, and then he's going he's to give it to someone else. Who else is there? We're his people. They knew what was happening here, but th- th- what did they do? They denied it. You see, there's something to be said about Judgmere. It's absolutely certain, but it is a stumbling block because look what it says. Surely not. You know what? Those same two words are still being said today. Surely not. It's the thing that so many are so quickly to bend on. They're so quickly to soften the edges on because most of the time it's hard to say what is true. It's hard to say the judgment of God is coming. People don't want to hear about judgment again, but it implies that you are going to be judged of something. And deep down, we all know who we really are. We know who we really are. And when we're placed before that holy judge, we will be exposed. But it's not just judgment again that they're rejecting. They're rejecting Jesus himself. Because look what Jesus says in verse 17. He says in verse 17, I love what he says here, but he looked directly at them. He wasn't like the Pharisees. Oh, what should we do if we say this? It's going to be this. Oh, I'm scared of all these people. They may stone me. Uh No, he looks right at them. Throw a stone at them. He looks directly at them, and he says this. What then is this written? Basically, he says... um, what do you think this means? Right, in a sarcastic way. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
We read it this morning. This was a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22, that the leaders of Israel would reject the stone, the Messiah, Jesus, who he himself would be the cornerstone of the foundation of not just Israel, but all of the church, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the cornerstone, and, and yet he is going to be rejected. But it's that stone. It's that stone, as it said, is going to be the very stone that judges. It's that stone who's going to judge. The stone that everybody's tripping over and they're stumbling over, it's that stone who's going to judge every person, every culture, and every nation of all history. Whether, you, whether you're tripping over him and being broken or the stone will fall on you and crush you. There will always be destruction. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will what? Crush him. I've never had a stone fall on me, but I've had a few things fall on my feet. And it hurts. They'll be flattened, crushed, destroyed. This is judgment. Many are going to stumble and fall over Jesus because he himself will be the righteous judge. In unbelief, they will re rebel against his authority. They will reject him as Savior Messiah. They will reject his atoning work on the cross and the resurrection, calling it foolishness. But those who fall over Jesus, what is it? They will be broken into pieces and will be crushed by him. And be crushed by him. The righteousness of Jesus will come down like a crushing rock on the world, and it cannot be ignored, and it cannot be avoided. Do we understand that the judgment of God will come on those who reject the Lord and who reject the gospel? It's a stumbling block for those who do not believe. And even people who call themselves that they're believers... It's a stumbling block to them. And wanting to tell everyone that that's not true, that, that, God's, that God is love, which is true, but God is not going to judge. That he will not condemn you because he loves, love, he, because he loves. Now, if that was true, if, if what they say is true, then why would any of us ever want to preach the gospel? Wouldn't it be safer if we didn't say anything at all and, and God would just go on mysteriously loving every one of us and then we would just end up in heaven and go, oh, you've been loving me the whole time. Okay, great. Don't we condemn people when we do share the gospel with them? Why would we want to tell anyone about Jesus? What would be the point? Why, why would anyone go to their church if that's the message that they're preaching? Which actually is proving to be true because their churches are becoming smaller than ours. Because they have no message. They have, they have nothing to, be, to believe. They have nothing to, to, to go on. I, I don't know which. It wasn't the one from this week on the briefing, but the week before, there's churches, right? We're losing very loosely here. People who become church members and they're self-proclaimed atheists. But they go there for the fellowship. Such a complete dishonesty, isn't it? 
It's such a complete dishonesty. And, and here's the thing. When, when we preach and talk about the judgment of God, we don't, it's not in a way of condemnation. The condemnation will come. But the same reason why Jesus tells us about it today is the same reason why we would tell people of the doom that's coming. It's out of love. This is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's lifting the veil of the future, isn't he? It's not hidden from us. He, he wants us to know what's going to happen when you reject him and you continually, ongoingly reject him. He wants to know this because he loves us and because he, again, he's kind. It's Satan that wants people to be blind to this. It's him who, who wants people to be confused and even to believe the garbage theology we've been talking about. That judgment isn't real, right? I mean, that's what he wants. That's what he wants you to believe. And then he wants you to believe it's because God loves you. How deceptive is that? But Jesus tells us that because he loves us, he's making it very clear. He's making it very clear to us that we may not feel the severity of judgment. You know, to us this morning, when we talk about judgment, we may not feel that severity. Like, it may not be as striking as maybe it once did, and, and it may be easy for us to just kind of blow by it. And, and let me just tell you why that has happened. Because you've been given grace. You, you've been given grace. And, and as we sung, Christ the sure and steady anchor. You know where your assurance lies. You know where your, your anchor is. Because you have been given the grace to believe in Christ and not reject him. But yet this is still a terrible reality for unbelievers. That judgment is certain. That sin has separated them from God from God, and yet even now, in his patience, in his kindness, he's still being patient, he's still being kind to them, he will come and judge. And it's good for us, even though we're comfortable on the boat, comfortable in this, it's good for us to be reminded of not only to be discerning of the, the, the bad theology that may be out there, but also discerning on how to pray and to pray and to plead for those to others to repent and to believe in Christ. I think the Apostle Paul set, set for us the beautiful example in Romans 9. The very beginning of Romans 9, Romans 9, 1 through 3, gives us that beautiful example of what it means to, to pray and to plead and to yearn and to desire that sinners, your own people, would come to know Christ. What did he say? He said, I would, I would account myself even a curse if my brothers could come to know him. That's why we are to be reminded of this. This is why it's good for us to be reminded of such things. So as we close, those are our, our three things. We have to ask ourselves the question, are you building your life on the cornerstone? Is he the capstone of your life? Is Christ Jesus himself, according to the word of God, your cornerstone? Or is he your stumbling block? 
You see, what this text tells us is that we're either being built up on him or we're going to be broken or crushed by him. We're either going to be built by him, on him, or crushed by him. If we're being built in him, then let's not be the tenants who reject him or reject his word. Jesus is telling us and showing us the character and nature of God so that we would be built up even more in him. But there's also really good news for those who are being built up in him. Even though there is such rejection, and there's always been such rejection, again, the controversial Jesus has always been controversial. He is telling us that the kingdom will prevail as well. That the kingdom won't be crushed. That the kingdom won't be subverted. That the kingdom won't be destroyed. But it will prevail. And why? Because Christ is victorious. And in just the week, not our week, but the week in the Bible, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And in that death, he is going to crush sin. He's going to crush the power of sin. And then he is going to defeat death in his resurrection. Because the Alpha and the Omega who in himself bore the penalty of sin on the cross and declared it that very day that it is finished. And he is victorious. That is the cornerstone by which we build our lives. That is what we build on. That is our inheritance. That is our kingdom. And those who are not being built on it will be crushed by it. These are very serious things, aren't they? The stumbling block of the world, the stumbling block of those who are around you who are unbelievers, who whether they are just nominal in their belief or they are atheists, the stumbling block is Christ, and this is why. The stumbling block of the gospel but praise be to God that our minds were once darkened in sin and were bent toward our own being, but our own tenets of our lives to be the owner of our lives. That we were once darkened and blind to sin, that God in his grace was merciful, merciful to us, and then gracious to us to open our eyes and to open our hearts to see the beauty of Christ, to see the wickedness of our sins and giving us the faith to believe and the grace to repent. So that we would no longer stumble over him, but that we would build our lives, our churches, and the kingdom of God on him and him alone. And that kingdom will prevail. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be here again to hear your word. The truth of the gospel, the truth of, of who you are, and we have so many things we can thank, be thankful for to you. Oh, your steadfast love toward me. 
in ways and manners, Lord, my very finite mind can't even recall, but yet you have been so kind. You've been so kind to all of us. And you have given us Christ to believe. You've given us the grace to believe these things and the faith to believe, and in that we rejoice. But also in that, Lord, there's an there's a unsettling burden of our hearts to pray and to plead for the lost around us and to take the gospel to them. That they too, God, by your grace, their eyes and their hearts would be opened and made new. No longer stumbling over Christ, but being built upon him. Help us, Lord, as we respond now, as we encourage one another in these truths. For Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.